Well, our sermon text this morning is 1 John chapter 5, verses 1 through 3. And if you're able to do so, I'll invite you to stand for the reading of God's word this morning. 1 John chapter 5, verses 1 through 3. Give ear to the reading of God's word this morning. Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God. And everyone who loves the Father loves whoever has been born of him. By this we know that we love the children of God when we love God and obey his commandments. For this is the love of God, that we keep his commandments, and his commandments are not burdensome. This ends the reading of God's word. You may be seated. Let's, uh, let's pray and ask God's blessing upon his word to us this morning. Heavenly Father, we once again thank you for your word. Thank you that you have not left us to grope around uh, in the dark uh, blindly to, to find the way to come to know you, especially to, to come to know you through faith in Jesus Christ for salvation. Thank you for giving us your holy word. And once again, we ask that you would work in us by your spirit, that you would give us understanding and give us eyes to see and ears to hear great things from your word. Sanctify us by your truth, for your word is truth, and even save the lost. For it's Christ's name that we pray all these things. Amen. Well, I don't know how many of you have had uh, any kind of first aid training or CPR training. I had some of those kinds of uh, trainings in my time in the Navy. And I recently had an, a course, uh, which I hadn't had in a while, on first aid, basic first aid, through the Sheriff's Department, which I was very grateful to have. Uh, if you've had those kind of courses, you know they teach you all kinds of things. They teach you CPR uh, and other basic skills. And one of the first things they always teach you in those kinds of classes is the importance of looking and checking for vital signs. You come across someone who's unresponsive, it's the first thing you're taught to do to find out, are they alive? Are they in distress? Are they breathing? Is there a pulse? Uh, they tell you to check the ABCs, which stands for, I think it still stands for airway, breathing, and circulation, those kinds of things. I think they've changed some of the nomenclature, but those are basically what they are. Um, well, in a similar way, in our text in 1 John, and really throughout the entire letter, uh, John is teaching us to check ourselves, not other people, but to check ourselves for spiritual vital signs. He's asking us and teaching us to check for signs of spiritual life, that is, life given by the Holy Spirit in the new birth. And one of the, one of the most important ways... Uh, that we can come to know that we have eternal life, which John tells us in 1 John 5.13, is the point of the whole letter. Uh, one of the main ways we come to know that we have eternal life is by coming to know whether or not we have spiritual life. In other words, whether we have been made spiritually alive from the dead by the work of the Holy Spirit. And so in order uh, for us to help us as believers in Christ to attain that assurance that certain and sure confidence of our salvation. What John does throughout this letter, as if you've been here for much of the study, uh, he applies what we think of as, as three tests, uh, so to speak, three tests of spiritual life, spiritual vital signs, uh, signs of our truly having been born again and being in a state of salvation. And those three tests might be summarized, at least I summarize them by these three words, love, obedience and truth and I, I make an acronym of that intentionally the word lot is how I remember it uh, those same same three tests are sometimes referred to uh, by different commentators as the social test the moral test and the doctrinal test 
Uh, in other words, these three tests, these three things are the evidence or the proof of the genuineness of our being born again unto new life in Christ. Those are what these three tests are meant to, to, to show to us. And those three tests are as follows. We're going to see these, uh, the truth of whether or not we are born again to new life in Christ. First, in our love for God, which is seen primarily, frankly, in our love for the brethren. So our love for God and our love for the brethren. Two, in our obedience, however imperfect it may be, to God's commandments. And third, last but not least, it is seen in our believing and abiding in the truth of Jesus Christ in the gospel. So you might have noticed as I was reading the text, these short three verses, that John includes in our short passage all three tests, and he does so in such a way as to kind of intertwine them. There's no separating them. You can't take them piecemeal. It's not a la carte. You can't say, well, I know I'm born again because I love the brethren, but I don't obey God's commandments. Well, I, I know I, I have true life in Christ because I hold to true doctrine. Yeah, but I don't love the brethren, and I don't really obey God's commandments. John gives us no wiggle room in that fashion. He intertwine, It's like a threefold cord the Bible talks about. They're, they're so wrapped together as to become the rope of our salvation or the cord of our salvation. And without any one of them, the other two really are in doubt uh, as, as well. They are inseparable. They all three must go together. All three together are the evidence of our being born again and having been begotten of God by his Holy Spirit. Faith in Christ, love for God and the brethren, and obedience to God's commandments. So this morning we're going to look at, because our text does, we're going to look at all three of these tests in some kind of order, all the while acknowledging there's plenty of overlap between all three of them. First, we're going to look at what John tells us about what we must believe. Second, we're going to see what John tells us about the necessity of love. And third, the necessity of obedience to God's commandments. Now, the first thing that John brings our attention to is that our, our belief uh, in the truth of Christ is the evidence of the new birth. Our belief in the truth of Christ is evidence of the new birth. Look at verse 1 again. John says, everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God. Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God. You could say it this way. How do you know that you have been born again or born of God? What are the ways that you can understand and know that for sure? Uh, the first answer to that question that John gives us in our text is that if you have been born of God, you will believe or trust in Christ for salvation. And in doing that, you will also believe that Jesus is the Christ. This is what you might call the doctrinal test. Believing and holding to the truth of Christ is the first sign of true spiritual life. Now, the first thing probably to notice here that maybe you, maybe you did and maybe you didn't notice this as you were reading is that John, to use what some theologians, uh, the way they put it, John tells us in our text that regeneration precedes faith. Being born again in some way precedes and is the cause of faith not the other way around. Very often people say that it's by faith that you're born again unto new life. That's not what John tells us in our text. And why do I say that? This will be a little bit of a grammar lesson, so I apologize for that ahead of time. Uh, but the word believes, everyone who believes, is in the present tense. 
It's an ongoing thing. But when he says, has been born of God, that is the translation of the perfect tense in the Greek there. And the perfect tense in this case, it indicates a past event with ongoing results. In other words, John is saying, if I can, I'm not going to diagram a sentence for you here this morning, but he's saying, basically, having been born again, you now believe. That is clearly what John says in, in our text. John Stott puts it this way. He says that it, it clearly shows that believing is the consequence, not the cause of the new birth. So belief, your trusting in Christ is evidence of new life being given to you by God, the Holy Spirit. And so being born of God comes first, and it is only because one has been born of God that you believe that Jesus is the Christ and believe on him for salvation. So how do you know if you have been born again by the work of the Holy Spirit? This isn't an exciting answer in some ways. Maybe it's not, you know, we'd all like to have like big, you know, fantastic signs and these kinds of things. But the, the way that you know is simple. Your faith. Have you trusted in Jesus Christ for salvation? And do you believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Messiah of God, and the only way of salvation? If so, that is evidence that you have been born again and are a child of God through faith. You know, in many ways, this is very similar to, uh, I know you're probably thinking, you always bring up election somehow. Uh, this is similar in some ways to how you know if you're among the elect of God. You know, many times uh, when someone comes to a knowledge of the truth of Scripture about election and divine predestination, it happens that very often that sincere believers, once they start to understand these things, they start to wonder, well, how can I be sure that I'm one of the elect? Have you ever asked that? You ever think about election and think, well, if that's the case, but what does Ephesians 1 4 say? You know, Paul says, I'll have to read this on your own, but Ephesians chapter 1, the first 14 verses, Paul talks about all these. He says, We have every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ by God's mercy and love. And what's the first one he brings up? Having been chosen by, he chose us in him, in Christ, when? Before the foundation of the world. Of all the blessings that Paul brings up, he brings that one up first. Why? It's the foundation of everything that follows. If God left it up to us, none of us would be sitting here believing. But, but that's the first thing he says. But if, if we have been chosen before the foundation of the world, how do we know that? How, do we, how does any of us know that God has chosen you or me or anybody for salvation? Have you ever asked yourself that question? Well, how do you know? No, here's how you don't know. We don't get to do like the Wizard of Oz and pull the curtain back and look over God's shoulder and go, oh, he's got his decrees here. Oh, there of my name. You know, we don't get to peek at the, at the Lamb's Book of Life uh, before we are with the Lord in heaven. We don't get to, to look into what Deuteronomy 29 calls the secret things of God. He says the secret things of God belong to God alone, but the revealed things that he has given us in his word belong to us and our children that we might do them forever. But just as you know that you're born again because you believe, likewise, you know that you are among the elect. Why? Primarily because you believe. First, uh, 2 Thessalonians 2.13, Paul says this. Listen to what he says. But we ought always to give thanks to God for you, brothers, beloved by the Lord. Why? Because God chose you as the first fruits to be saved. And then he adds, 
How? Through sanctification by the Spirit and belief in the truth. So Paul said to the Thessalonians, not just himself, but those with him, we thank God for you, for your salvation. Now, one, he didn't say, I thank you for your salvation. He says, I thank God. And why? Because he knew God chose them. How did he know God chose them? By the sanctification in their life and their belief in the truth. Paul saw the fruit of, of new life in Christ being first and foremost by their belief in the truth, their belief in Christ, and by their sanctification. And this means God chooses the ends, salvation, as well as the means to those ends. If God has chosen you for salvation, he has also chosen you to come to saving faith in Christ at some point in your life. Through the preaching of the gospel, which he has also preordained, all those things. Rob, Rob's conversion under hearing Psalm 1 by his friend was no accident. God foreordained that from before the foundation of the world. But in the same way as that, we know that we have been born of God by our faith in Christ. But notice this, that true Christian faith involves believing certain things. It involves believing the truth, the truth of Christ. Faith, faith is much more than mental assent to a list of facts. Amen? Faith is not a, a doctrinal quiz. When you get to the pearly gates, you know, that's not really what happens. But, you know, when you, when you stand before God in the judgment seat, he's not going to give you a quiz. He's not going to hand you a piece of paper and say, well, let's, let's see if you get at least 7 out of 10 of these right. No, mental assent is not faith. But faith does include doctrine that we must assent to. Faith is not, faith is, is not, is more than that, but it certainly is not less than, than that. Uh, we must believe what the scriptures say about the truth of, of the, who Christ is and what he has done for our salvation. Truth-saving faith involves believing and trusting in Christ himself. But how do you know if you're trusting in Christ? It's, it's the Christ that's revealed in scripture, not the Christ of our own imaginations. We hold to the truth of scripture and the gospel and what it says about Christ. Any faith, John has already told us this previously in the letter, any faith that does not confess that Jesus is the Christ and does not confess that he is the Son of God is not saving faith. It's really not faith, biblical faith at all. In fact, it's something other than the Christian faith altogether. Lots of people claim to believe in Jesus Christ, but they don't believe he's the Christ. They don't believe he's the Son of God. Jehovah's Witnesses, for example, if you ask one of them, if they come to your door, do you believe in Jesus for salvation? What will they say? Of course, yes. Do you believe he's the son of God? No. Is that the Christian faith? No. Is that faith in Jesus? No, it's a faith in Jesus of their own imagination. We have to believe in the actual Jesus, the one and only son of God and savior of, of the world. John already said in 1 John 4, 2, that, uh, that anybody who does not confess that Jesus has come in the flesh, that faith is not saving faith. It is not from God. So what we believe about Christ matters. You don't have to be a, an expert theologian, but you do have to believe in the truth of Christ as revealed in Scripture and the Gospel and hold to that truth. 
Well, that brings us to our second point, which is that love, love for God, which is primarily evidenced in our love for the brethren, is also a sign of life and evidence of our being born of God. Uh, in, in verse 1, John says again, everyone who believes, everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God. And then what does he add? And everyone who loves the Father loves whoever has been born of him. Notice how he binds them together. He doesn't do them separately. Now, frankly, I think the King James Version renders the sense of the latter part of this verse a little more clearly than the ESV does here. It puts it like this. The language may seem kind of archaic, but, but bear with me. He, it says there, Everyone that loveth him that begat, that's God the Father, loveth him also that is begotten of him. The, the, frankly, the word father is not even in the Greek text, but it's clearly who they're talking about, who John is talking about here. He who begat is God the Father. I think this preserves the play on words that John uses here in our text a little bit better. So, everyone that loveth him that begat, that's God the Father, loveth him also that is begotten of him. Now, being born of God and being a child of God results, I would hope, and I would say must be, it must result in loving God. If you don't love God, how can you think that you have been born again and know God. Even the early Gnostics, these false teachers John was refuting in this letter and were troubling the church in his day, they would have claimed to love God, right? In some ways, I think John is still refuting them even in these kind of statements. That's why John ties loving the brethren so closely to it. Now, they would have claimed to love God, but John shows us the inseparable connection between loving God and loving the brethren. If you love God, in other words, if you love God, that love will evidence itself in your love for other believers, your love for the brethren, your love for brothers and sisters in the Lord. Just as James in James chapter 2 tells us that faith without works is dead, even so, if I might be permitted to, to use a, a play on words in that case, love for God without a corresponding love for the brethren is dead. It does not exist. It is a fiction. There is no such thing, John tells us, as love, true love for God that exists apart from and without an actual love of the brethren. In other words, how we treat other believers reveals our true relation to God. You ever thought about that? The Bible tells us that in, in I don't know how many different ways. I'll think of a few of them here. Think of, of Saul's conversion on the Damascus Road in Acts 9. Before Saul was converted by Christ on the Damascus Road, we are told in Galatians 1.3, Paul himself tells us, he persecuted the church violently and tried to destroy it. Paul's mission in life before Christ stopped him cold in his tracks and converted him was, to, was nothing less than the destruction of the Christian church. He hated Christ, and because he hated Christ, who did he take his anger out on? Christ's people, the Christians. And it says he persecuted them violently. Remember when Stephen was stoned to death in Acts 8? It says there was a young man named Saul kind of holding the coats of the people throwing the rocks, assenting to his death. In other words, he was nodding his head. He was happy and in agreement with this man's violent death for nothing but proclaiming and holding to the truth of Christ. Uh, 
What did Jesus say to him when he stopped him on his, in his tracks on the Damascus Road? Do you remember? Acts 9.4, he says, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting my people? No, that's not what he says. Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Jesus was ascended in glory. Saul wasn't touching him or harming him in the slightest. But when he persecuted the church, Jesus took it personally. He took it as you're persecuting, not them primarily, but, but me. And in case that was not clear enough, when Paul asked him, who are you, Lord? What does Jesus say in verse 5? I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. You think you're persecuting these people. You're persecuting me, the Lord. Jesus. In persecuting the church, Saul was persecuting or seeking to persecute Christ himself. Why? Jesus is so closely associated to and united to his church, which the, the, the Bible calls the body of Christ, of which he is the head. And so how you treat the church, the body of Christ, is really how you treat Christ himself. And so if you hate and despise the church of God... No matter what you say, you don't love Christ, you hate him. If you hate his body, you hate the head. If you hate his bride, which also was what the church is called, you can't claim to love the bridegroom. Did Jesus not say much the same thing elsewhere in Matthew's gospel? Matthew 25, remember Matthew 25? Jesus talks about the, the, the great judgment and the separation of the sheep from the goats. How is it determined which were the sheep and which were the goats? Do you remember? It was how they treated what Christ said, the least of these his brethren. If they did good, administered unto them, fed them when they were hungry, clothed them when they were naked, gave them drink when they were thirsty, visited them when they were sick or in prison. In doing that, he says, you did it unto me. And when they didn't do it, they were the goats. And what does he say? When you didn't do it to the least of these, my brethren, you didn't do it unto whom? Me. This thing is woven all throughout the scriptures, especially in the New Testament. And so we demonstrate that we have been begotten of God, having been born again by the Holy Spirit of God. How? By loving those who likewise have also been born of God. You know, think about this. Just as earthly family members, just as earthly family members most naturally love and care for one another, even though they may squabble and fight. Uh, even so, the family of God is likewise and does likewise. Now, there's always exceptions to the rule. We all have family members we don't get along with and all these things. But, you know, when you were, if you had brothers, you probably fought like cats and dogs, right? But if somebody else attacks your brother, what do you do? Oh, you're in trouble. You fight me, you fight all of us. You fight my brother, you got me too. I'm coming along for the ride. Why? Because you're family. Deep down you know that you're not just like other people. You're not just an acquaintance. You're a bonded in blood. In fact, elsewhere Paul says those who don't take care of their family, their blood relatives, he says they are worse than an unbeliever and have denied the faith. We all know there's a family bond of blood that's deeper. In a, in a, in a greater sense, there is a bond among the family members of God who have been born again by his spirit. There will always be a spirit wrought family likeness and love among all those who are born of God. That's what John is telling us here in our text. Well, that brings us to the third thing 
Last but not least, John tells us that obedience to the commandments of God is evidence of our being born of God and of loving him and his children. Look at verse 2 again. He says, by this we know that we love the children of God. When we love God and obey his commandments. So first he said, here's how you know you love God. You love his children. Now he says, how do you know you love his children? He flips it around. By loving God and keeping his commandments. Verse 2. Here once again we see that love and obedience must go together. If you love God, you will also love the brethren. And if you love God, you will also keep his commandments. Not perfectly. John never teaches perfectionism in this letter or anywhere else. But, but keeping his commandments is a sign of vital signs. It's a sign of life. F.F. Bruce says it this way. Love to God and love to his children. It's God's children. Love to God and obedience to God are so completely involved in each other that any one of them implies the other too. A man may say he loves God, but his love to God can become manifest to himself and to others only in so far as he obeys God's commandments and shows practical love to God's children. If we love God, we will demonstrate that by obeying his will. What did Jesus himself say in John 14, 15? If you love me, you will do what? If you love me, you'll keep my commandments. If you love me, you'll keep my commandments. Keeping God's commandments, keeping God's, you know, even the Ten Commandments, it is not legalism. Obedience to the will of God is not legalism. That is a falsehood. It is, is it possible to treat God's commandments in a legalistic way? Certainly. Do many people do that? Of course they do. It is possible to treat God's law in a legalistic, pharisaical way. But is that obedience? No. No. Of course not. That's nothing but self-righteousness and hypocrisy. After all, God's commandments are the expression of his holy will. And his holy will is an expression of his nature, character, and perfections. Because of this, we who believe in Christ ought to love God's law because we love God himself. When you read God's law, there's a lot of things you can say about it. But it is a reflection and an expression of God's character and God's will. So if you love God, you don't hate his will. If you love God, you certainly don't hate the things that reflect and are an expression of his holy character and perfections. What did the psalmist say in Psalm 119? Psalm 119.97, he says this. this. This might be the strangest thing that many evangelicals ever hear if they don't read this psalm. But he says, Psalm 119.97, Oh, how I love your law. It is my meditation all the day. How do you know he loved the law? Second half of the verse. I can say I love the Bible, but if I never read it, and if I, never, if I don't meditate on it day and night as opportunity arises, if it just sits on the shelf gathering dust all week, I don't love God's law. I don't love God's word. He says, oh, how I love your law. How do I know? It is my meditation all the day. And then in case we thought, well, Psalm 119 is a really long psalm. 
It's the longest chapter in the Bible. You know, all those verses, he kind of snuck that one in there. Twice more in the psalm, he says the same thing. Three times. Psalm 119, verses 113 and 163, he says, I love your law. As believers, we should love God's law, even God's commandments. And let us not forget that love itself, here's the kicker, love is a commandment. In fact, I'll go one step further, love is the greatest commandment, isn't it? What does Jesus say in Matthew 22? Uh, in Matthew 22, verses 34 to 40, it says this. When, but when a Pharisee, the Pharisees heard that he, that's Jesus, had silenced the Sadducees, they gathered together and one of them, a lawyer, of course, asked him a question to test him. So they're like, oh, he, he got those Sadducees. Good, get them. Oh, but we're going to trick him. We're going to trip Jesus up. He asked him a question, not sincerely, but to test him. Teacher, so respectful. Teacher, which is the great commandment in the law? And he said to him, Jesus said to him, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. But he doesn't stop there, does he? He says, and a second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. Now that phrase, the law and the prophets, it's a shorthand way of saying, they wouldn't have used this phrase. It's a shorthand way of saying, the entire Old Testament. In their day, that was all the Bible that existed. So really what he's saying is, on love for God and love for your neighbor depend all of Scripture. It's the message and the heart and soul in some way of all of Scripture as regards God's will for our lives. The two greatest commandments that must always go together and which in some way are a summary of the entirety of Scripture Old Testament, not just the new, is love. Love for God and love for our neighbor. Love and God's law are not at odds with each other in the slightest. Love and law are not at odds. The law of God and the gospel of God are not at odds with each other. They do not contradict each other in the slightest way. Our Confession of Faith, the Westminster Confession of Faith, puts it this way. In its chapter on the law, it says that the three uses of the law that we often talk about, you know, the, the three uses of the law, I think Jonathan mentioned them last time, uh, he, he went to the Ten Commandments. What are they? They are, I'll, I'll spare you the names of them, but the one, the one use is the law drives us to Christ. It shows us our sin. It shows us the need that we need Christ, the Savior, to save us from our sins. The second use of the law is called the civil use, and it's meant to restrain sin in society as well as in us. It's a barrier. It's supposed to, you know, it's like a speed bump on the road to make you slow down and not do what you want to do in some ways. And the third use is the normative use. In other words, the third use is the rule of life for believers. How do you show your gratitude for, to God for his salvation in Christ? You love God and obey his commandments. You look at God's law and say, here's how God would have me to live to be more like him. The confession of faith says, those three uses of the law are not, here it is, quote, not contrary to the grace of the gospel, but do sweetly comply with it. Law and love are not doing this. God's law and love go 
They sweetly comply. Even the gospel sweetly complies with the law of God. And then it adds, the spirit of Christ subduing and enabling the will of man to do that freely and cheerfully, which the will of God revealed in the law requires to be done. has a lot to do with the work of the Holy Spirit, just like John says in our text. Why is God's law and the three uses of it not contrary to the gospel? How does it sweetly comply with it because of the work of the spirit of Christ subduing and enabling our wills to do that freely and cheerfully, which the will of God, as revealed in God's law, tells us to be done. Again, it's a sign of life. It's a vital sign of the life of the Spirit, having made us born again. You might know this. One of the many hallmarks and blessings of the new covenant and the gospel of Christ is that in the new covenant it was promised and prophesied long beforehand that God would write his law not, not just on tablets of stone, but on the tablets of the hearts of his people. Jeremiah 31:33 says this, For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. Here it is. I will put my law within them, and I will write it on their hearts. And I will be their God, and they shall be my people. The gospel doesn't say, hey, you know that law thing? We'll get rid of that. It gets rid of the penalty of the law. Christ's death paid the debt that we owed in our place. But God doesn't then say, okay, that law, done with that, get rid of that. No. He doesn't just write it on tablets of stone. He writes it on our hearts. He writes it on us. Uh, and, and the result is, I will be their God and they shall be my people. In the gospel of Christ, God gives new life to those who were spiritually dead in their sins. That's what Paul says in Ephesians 2. We were dead, spiritually dead, not sick, not crippled, not dead in our trespasses and sins. But he gave us new life by his mercy, by the work of the spirit. He takes hearts of stone and turns them to hearts of flesh. Listen to Ezekiel 36 verses 26 and 27. The Lord says, says the following, And I will give you a new heart, and a new spirit I will put within you, and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh, and I will put my spirit within you, there it is, and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. What's the result? New life in Christ, a changed life in Christ, even a love for God's law. He gives us a new heart. That's why Paul says elsewhere in 2 Corinthians 5.17, if any man be in Christ, he is a what? He's fixed up a little bit? He's got a, got a new paint job? He's touched up? No, he's a new creation. Behold, all things, old things have passed away and all things, all things have become new. If you're a Christian, you are not who you used to be. You're not yet what you're going to be, but you're not who you used to be outside of Christ. And what's the result? John, John, what does he do? He defines love for us in verse 3. What does this love for God look like? He says, for this is the love of God, what? That we keep his commandments. And he adds, his commandments are what? Not burdensome or not grievous. It takes the Spirit of God to change a heart to do that. 
to look at God's law that way. Outside of Christ, we hate God. We hate his law. It's nothing but a burden. In Christ, God's law is no longer a burden. Doesn't mean it's easy, right? But Christ's yoke is easy and his burden is light. So loving God means to keep his commandments and not viewing them as burdensome or grievous. By not viewing God's law as an onerous burden strapped to your back, but something you delight in because you love God. Now I know what you might be thinking, I still sin all the time. I struggle with sin. John doesn't say you won't struggle with sin. The scriptures nowhere say a believer doesn't struggle with sin. Quite the opposite. Romans 7, Paul says, why do I do what I don't want to do? In the internet, I delight in God's law, but I find I have a hard time doing it. Right? You know, who will deliver me from this body of death? I thanks be to God through Christ Jesus our Lord, he says. But only someone born again by the Spirit of God would ever say such a thing. You, if you're a believer, you delight in God's law, and you, it's, it vexes you that you still struggle with sin. That's evidence of, of, of new life in Christ. That is a proof of life and vital signs. Well, all three of these tests, love and obedience and truth, again, they are intertwined, they are interrelated. They are the clear and simple evidence that the Bible gives us of our being born again as believers in Christ by the Spirit of God. And so I'll ask this morning to examine yourself. Do you see those three things evident in your life as a believer? Not in perfection. None of us love God the way we should. None of us love our neighbor or our brethren as we should. But do you see the presence of those things in your life? Do you love other Christians? Do you delight to be in fellowship with other Christians? Do you, do you, do you seek to and, and try to obey God's commandments to the best of your ability by the Spirit of God? Acknowledging we all far, fall far short. Then if that's the case in your life, you should be encouraged you should be assured that you really are a child of God. Why? For you show, however imperfectly in this life, the family resemblance and the family, the family love. And so what should you do if that's the case? Seek to grow more and more in the grace and knowledge of the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Seek to grow in your faith, your understanding and knowledge of the scriptures, especially about the truth of Christ, and seek as, as much as you can to grow in your love for God and the brethren. And when you do that, you will grow in assurance and in your joy in the Lord. Or do you claim to love God but find that you still hate God's law? Do you still think of God's law as nothing but a burden? I wish it wasn't here. I wish I could just do what I want to do and what I want to do is not what the scripture says. Do you find his commandments to be burdensome and, and so continue to walk in a way that is utterly contrary to them and in rebellion against them in disobedience? Do you claim to love God but hate God's people and avoid the gathered church like the plague? I know I'm preaching to the choir here in so many ways and I'm glad that's the case, but do you avoid the church like the plague? Do you claim to love Christ but hate his bride and hate his body? If that describes you, John would say that despite what you claim and profess to believe in the past, uh, you're yet still in your sins. And the Bible would say, turn from your sins, turn to Christ by faith that you may have all your sins freely forgiven and may have the joy and promise of eternal life. And then what happens is the Lord will put his spirit within you and give you a new heart, one that loves him, 
loves his people, and even loves, of all things, loves his law, all to the praise of his glorious grace. Amen.